Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, all my friends. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. I'm your host, Ian, joined as usual by the rest of the literary Andrews types, Emily. Hello. Megan. Hey. Adam. Hello, hello. And Missy. Hi. I wasn't ready for that. That was shocking. Hey, listen, I'm going to change up. I'm going to hopscotch around a little bit. You're just going to have to keep up. So pay attention. Hmm? How's everybody? How's everybody doing? I will. I will let the listeners in on a secret. We are this particular day recording early enough in the morning that I'm still halfway through my first cup of coffee. So the question, how are you doing? is not just sort of a placeholder. How are we this morning? (laughs) Or maybe just are we? Are we? Are we, in fact, this morning? I haven't done a systems check yet. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Awake and ambulatory. That's all you <laughs> that's need to all, know. That's all you need. That is all you need. Okay, here, here goes. Let's get, our, let's get our brains working today. You are a sidekick. What hero are you following around? Oh, wow. Oh, I love it. Does it have to be a hero that has a sidekick, or can you be the sidekick that this hero actually doesn't really have? I don't know if it's a sidekick, though. I, I Okay, so I, I've got somebody in mind. Okay, go, Mom. You can tell me if it, if it qualifies. Okay. So I am Elastigirl, and <laughs> I'm the sidekick to my husband, right? Are you calling me fat? <laughs> <laughs> Are you calling me thing. tiny-legged? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Incredible. I'm calling you Mr. Incredible. <laughs> I love this day. I think that I think that counts. I think I'm going to let it go. Okay. What I was thinking originally is that you could take it one of two ways. You could either um, choose a literary pair, like you could be. Oh, what is his? What is Don Quixote's? Uh, Sancho Panza. Sancho. Yeah, you could be Sancho to, to Don to a literal Don Quixote, or you could choose a, your favorite literary hero and then develop yourself as their sidekick, even if that sidekick didn't exist in the story. So it had to be a, li- a literary hero, not a sidekick from some superhero in a movie. I think The Incredibles is great literature. I don't, it's not even <laughs> literature. I mean, it's a movie. Right. It counts. But in a joke, everybody talks. <laughs> <laughs> Shut. Shutty. <laughs> Shutty. Okay, Dad. Now you have to go. I, despite the cultural problems with saying this, I would be Tonto to, to the, the Lone Ranger. Ranger. Yep. Because cowboys. Because because cowboys. Yep. Because my ideal world is the world of cowboys. And I don't yeah. care if it's authentic. I don't care if it's a Hollywood idea of cowboys. I would be a cowboy. Mm. A it's cowboy's true. He sidekick. Would, he totally would. <laughs> that is so great. There's not a lot to say about that. It's not really significant or thematic, but it is true. Okay. I am Watson because I am just taking notes trying to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Every time I ask one of these. I thought you were going to say it was because you love to solve mysteries. I do. You are our very own true Nancy Drew. It's true. Mysteries are my favorite ideal world. So you could be Bess Norton too, right? Or Bess Morton. (laughs) Nancy Drew's sidekick. No. (laughs) Speaking of fat. (laughs) Speaking of fat. Oh my goodness. Nice. I don't know. I don't have an immediate gut response to this one. As I think about it, I would want if I, if it's about following a literary character around, I would probably follow Samwise Gamgee around because I love him. I think he's the true hero of Lord of the Rings, and we'd eat great food all the way. That I can't believe Does you that said that. Make you Frodo? Well, but no, I don't think I don't think Samwise Gamgee actually has a sidekick, so it's kind of a lame answer. But I would be that. It's or not a lame answer. <laughs> it's the answer I was going to give. You're Rosie. That's cute. I'm so yeah. I'd be Rosie. Mm-hmm. I'm so frustrated by that. I literally was gonna Wait, say really? I want to be 
Samwise Gamgee's number two during the period of time after the Lord of the Rings. Well, you can't be Rosie. Yeah. I want to. I, I know <laughs> I can't be Rosie. I was thinking more of the guy that's the Hobbit that's being trained up to be Samwise's successor, and spends the back half of Sam's life learning from his wisdom, living in the Shire. I just when Samwise looks at Frodo and says, "Don't go where I can't follow," I would say that to Sam. <laughs> no, no, don't take Elevensies where I can't follow. <laughs> so, if anyone out there bears a shocking resemblance to Sean Austin, and. Uh, <laughs> And is loyal and true and clear-eyed. Call Megan up because she's single, <laughs> and I think you might have an in. <laughs> follow you anywhere. <laughs> oh man! Well done, you guys. That was really awesome. That was really awesome. So the real, the real question to drag it back down out of the clouds into something more serious. The real question on the table today is: What is a good life? When I was growing up, my mom used to talk to us about all these big, important questions, and it was, it was a little pattern. It was always, what's a good life, and what good is life? Those questions are united. I want to consider the front half of it. I want to lean on that a little bit, but I think this is an explicitly cultural question, and do with that what you will, but what makes a life worth living? And, and does it have to be defined by something basically human? Because it, it, I, th I think it has to be an attitude that all humanity has access to rather than something hinging on wealth or circumstance. If a good life is one lived at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro in a chic mud hut with running water alongside Swahili-speaking tour guides in the off-season, that's not a relevant answer. Hemingway? Right? There's not, there, aren't, there aren't enough mud huts for all of us. And so that particular definition of the good life can't actually work. So given that context, how would you guys answer the question what's a what's a good life hmm well first of all since you're talking about cultural uh, the idea of culture where that's concerned my first thought is i i'm thinking of this john mayer song called why georgia why you know it john mayer yes i do I'm driving up 85 in the kind of morning that lasts all in the afternoon i'm stuck inside the gloom that one and as he's driving along he is wondering about, he says, I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. Mm. Am I living it right? Mm -hmm. And he, he, he continues to meditate on this and to question. He says, I rent a room and I fill the spaces with wooden places to make it feel like home, but all I feel is alone. Maybe it's a quartered life crisis, just a stirring in my soul. Either way, I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. Am I living it right? And, and so, you know, at that point in his life, when he wrote, wrote this, he was living in Georgia, and he's wanting to be a famous singer and songwriter, and he's pursuing all the avenues, and he's, he's wondering, am I doing it? Am I, is this the right thing to pursue? Am I in the right place to pursue it? I don't know. And it's a very human question, not just, am I doing everything right to get this object that I have, but is the object that I have worth having? Have I, have I missed it altogether? I think... Um, I think the reason that I like the song so well is because it expresses not just a cultural sentiment, but a human sentiment. Because mm -hmm. I think people have been asking that question since the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. So how would you put it in a sentence, Missy? A good life is? Well, uh, we haven't gotten to that yet. Ah. Basically, that's just, I'm just seeing the question rising out of pop culture in a, you know, in a pop song by John Mayer. Yeah. <laughs> so it's clearly a question so I guess maybe to sharpen it, are we talking about a good life as defined by what you do in it and with it, which would be sort of the what good is life or good life defined as as like a verdict at the end once it's over? Right. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that what everybody's afraid of? You know, are we, are we going to get to the end and then the verdict on me is going to be, oh, well, you pursued all the wrong things. You had it all wrong all along. Poor you. You ruined and wasted your life. Everybody's afraid of that. And that's what I hear in that particular song. And that's the thing that I think is essentially human. Afraid of a regretful verdict at the end. Yeah. And so we're all, you know, everybody's motivated by something different. But I think the end goal for everybody is success. Mm. Right? We want the verdict on our life to be some sort of meaningful, successful venture. So that we don't look back at the end and say, well, I wasted that opportunity. Right? And everybody answers the question of what success is a little bit differently. Right? Mm. I'm sure that I don't answer it the same way John Mayer does. But but the question isn't, what is success? The question is, what is a good life? Well, I know, but they're 
can you see that those things are bound up together? I do, but at a certain point, there's lots of things bound up in it. And, and if we if we try and answer all the questions that are bound up in the question, what is a good life? We'll never get around to answering the question, what is a good life? We necessarily have to be a little reductive in order to answer a question that big, I think. Sure, sure. Well, uh, does anybody else want to wait in or shall I just hold forth? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to weigh in, actually. Okay. I wonder if there's also an element of, I know that every one of our questions so far is the interaction between human beings and the divine, but I think the divine has something to say about this question too, because if our worry is that at the end of our life, we will look back and judge it regretfully, judge all of our choices and uh, the guesses that we made about how to spend our time, that we will be filled with regret, then isn't there also a hope in that? that someone else will contradict us, will come down and say, the verdict on your life is set and it's outside of you. And the the question of what is a good life, maybe we're hoping someone else will answer it for us. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah, I think At that's least really true. The things that I'm bringing to the table today, I think interact with that concept as well, that, that there's something in the good life that's given rather than uh, decided on ourselves. I hope that's true. It's way more hopeful than what I hear coming out of John Mayer's mouth. Mm -hmm. Basically, what he's wrestling with in force is fame, reputation. A good life is a life where you're famous. You make yourself famous. You distinguish yourself above all of your peers, and you make a mark. And, you know, that's what the ancients used to say. The Greeks used to say that a life without fame is is a life not worth living, right? No, No glory, no life, right? He's um, working in a tradition here where that's concerned. And if I'm honest, there's a part of me that feels the same way. If I don't do something that is in some way, that is in some way um, heroic, then waste. What a waste, you know? And how do you do that when your life is really, really small? You know, what, is, what does it mean to actualize yourself? Is that even the goal? Should that even be the goal? Is it true, this this inner voice that says, you're never going to be anything, you're never going to amount to anything, you know what I mean? That seems to compel um, John Mayer and, uh, you know, a, a lot of other people that I, I live and breathe with, you know? So that's that's kind of what I'm looking at. Is, is it true that the good life is a life that really makes a mark and that it's in some way epic. Mm-hmm. So your current cultural example, is it John Mayer? You know, it, it starts with John Mayer. From John Mayer, I wandered over to Jaber Crow, um, the local barber. Do you guys know Jaber Crow? <laughs> I do. I don't understand how that's connected to John Mayer at well, all. Well, if but... you hold on a minute, I'll tell you. Because right. Okay, so Jaber Crow uh, is a book, my favorite book by Wendell Berry. So it's a modern, a modern novel. And it's the story of a boy twice orphaned who, once he's grown, returns to his hometown of Port William. And it's a, it's a fictional town. doesn't exist. Just FYI, actually, a friend of mine that I gave the book to really loved the book. He was about halfway through it. And he's like, he's telling his wife, Wendy, I think, I think we should go here. Let's go here for our next anniversary. And she's like, oh, no, 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 honey, no. It, it's not real. And he was so mad he never finished the book. He put it down. <laughs> But I think all that, all that, just to say that, boy, uh, uh, Wendell Berry does an excellent job of creating place, a sense of real place and characters that live and breathe. Well, yeah, and actually, not to not to interrupt you, but I think it's really funny that he's just acting. That your friend there is just acting on the same impulse we all have. Yes, I want to climb in there and live How and breathe there. How dare you present me with a vision of the world that that makes my own feel a little bit impoverished? You know what? I'm not going to finish your book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, anyway, so he creates this character, Jaber Crow, and puts him in this little fictional town of Port William. And once he goes back after, um, after being away for a while, growing up in an orphanage, he goes back and he takes up the position of town barber. And from this place in the community, he becomes a witness to the lives of its individual members. And he starts sorting all the data that he accumulates in order to contemplate this issue of the meaning in life. Um, and because of his own background and what he observes around him, he sees lots of pain and suffering that kind of put a fine point on the question, right? And in particular, he witnesses a woman's life, um, Maddie, who's the daughter of one of his good friends, that he's kind of watched grow up, who marries this real loser who totally takes her for granted in a million different ways. 
And Jaber just thinks Maddie is a saint, like the quintessential woman. He, she is like his Beatrice, right? She's Beatrice to his Dante. And um, he thinks she just deserves way better than all of that. So he vows to, just in his heart, just quietly, alone, never talks to her about it, but he vows to become that better one um, just because there should be someone in the world that actually sees and cherishes her in his heart. He doesn't really believe there's any future for himself and Maddie. It's not like he's hoping to actualize any of this. It's your prototypical chivalric love story in a lot of ways. But it really transcends this in that it recognizes the suffering that's infused in life. Because in deciding to become this better man that she really does deserve and to see her, acknowledge her, um, be faithful in his heart, to um, notice and love her and hold her up, right? He chooses a life of suffering because he's never going to be married to her. Um, he sees young boys in his community in the meanwhile heading off to war and never returning. He sees um, an ambitious wife in the community um, who just is dissatisfied with a, her her lot in rural America and uh, who's who really wants to make something of herself. So she leaves her husband, forsakes her, her home, and goes off to the city. He sees committed and faithful marriages on the one hand and good friendships and on the other hand forsakenness and um, brokenness. And at one point in the story, he takes up the, the position of janitor in the, the local church, um, which sort of underscores his position as barber, right? His, his um, fundamental identity, the invisible servant. And he has a vision of the church. And he sees all these faces that he knows so well, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, kind of swirling together and rising in a kind of crescendo of some kind of... of um, of glory. They are the Port William Saints, the elect, um, seen as they are to God. And none of the other stuff that he knows about them seems to matter very much. Um, somehow all of the dirt that he has seen in and among them, as well as the joy and the suffering uh, and the love, are a part of that hymn of praise to God. And in this vision, he discovers the significance of a life that's actually lived in community, that is in relationship um, to others. Mm. And, you know, like I said, that's a kind of suffering, but also a real glory to God. And, and it seems to me that Barry holds this up as not only an answer to the problem of pain and suffering, but an answer to the question of what is a good life. So I think of Jaber Crow as someone who lived a good life. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if you had to put all of that in a single sentence answer to yeah, the no, question, I can't. I can't what is that. a good life? I'm not going to do that. I'm not, not going to do that. Again. You, do that. you must. <laughs> Look, um, I, I a think life lived a in life, community. I, well, I just said the, it's a life lived <laughs> in community and faithful relationship to others. Nice. That's see, you did it. All you no, got to do is I put your feet to the fire. That. You can totally uh, pull I it just off. reiterated <laughs> my last sentence. Atta girl. Okay. Well done. Well done. Uh, indeed. It's good. You're impossible. Well, no, that's great. It's really that good. That was awesome. It's really good. Yeah. Well, everyone should go read Jaber. I appreciate the one sentence summary, though, because there are so many things that are a good life, it sounds like, in that book. <laughs> yeah. And I'd love to know what's the what's the blanket umbrella theme of the book? It's Jaber Crow. The person, the character, he is representative of the good life. And yeah. it's more than, I mean, he's, yes, he's living in community. A lot of people do, but it's how he lives in community. It's his anonymity. It's his service. It's his patient suffering with. It's, mm-hmm. it's his love. It's he's his, an expression of a, of he's a posture. An expression as a character. Of, yeah, exactly. Of, of, a, of a life well lived. It's interesting that you single that out. I, th- I do think that in Jaber Crow, uh, that is, that's the essential idea of the good life. But in, in the other parts of the novel, other aspects of the novel, and in Barry's work more generally, a good life is a life lived in a rural yeah. setting. Right? He has a lot of things to, to say about... And I'm not saying that. Right, right. I, I was interesting that you didn't go that direction because when you when the subject of Wendell Berry comes up, a lot of people say, oh, that the modern day the backward looking yeah. agrarian. Well, that's exactly what he is. Yeah, but I think you're exactly right that, well, that other aspects of Jaber's career are more central to this idea. I see him placing placing Jaber in a not just in the community of Port William, but very very much in that vision in a church, not not a bricks and mortar church necessarily, but there is a sense in which though the church is invisible in in a real way, it's universal. We li- we we 
live in the church in community with other people, right? The, the, the saints Mm -hmm. and in his, in the story, the saints aren't just in the pews on Sunday. Mm. They, they come outside the church as well. That's a larger group of people than just those you find inside the building and something about them suffering together, living together, suffering together, laughing together, the relational elements of their lives lived together um, is is the work of the church. Mm-hmm. Amen. But don't amen you think, and amen. Don't you think, though, that there is kind of a tragic note to the story? Because we said in our last podcast that um, one of the things man is made for, or yeah, that was the last time, was um, for love. He was made to receive it. And while Jaber does dedicate his life to loving Maddie, it is not something that he gets in this life in return. And I just wonder if it's not entirely fulfilled in his life, that mm-hmm. he there is something about a true relationship on that score that is lacking for him. Well, and it's, this may be lacking also, and this is a very broad statement, but we're podcasting. I think that's what the platform is for, broad <laughs> statements, right? Absolutely. I just think um, the issue Emily brings up is one I see in almost all chivalric love stories. It's actually not really love because love involves essentially vulnerability. It involves not choosing your own suffering, but opening yourself to whatever suffering may come. And um, putting yourself in someone else's hands, in a in a in an actual tactile way, not in a theoretical, uh, dreamy sort of way, way. Yeah. right? And so I I think what Emily's pointing to is really real for me at least. Well, um, and- from Ivanhoe on forward, like the chivalric ideal doesn't doesn't frankly embody all that love actually is. It certainly, it, it, I, I don't argue that. Mostly, I, what I'm suggesting is that his experience that is a little complicated and a little questionable, um, if we're honest, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's a little troubling that he marries some woman in his heart that already belongs to someone else. I mean, I think we, we, we would have to call that coveting. Yeah. Yeah. In some way, but anyway, (laughs) um, not to get too technical, I see that he's doing a thing here. He's working in a tradition of the chivalric love story. And if we follow that story, the idea of chivalric love is that by loving the other, that is, um, that you you see as pure and holy in some way, you're called up to a more pure, more holy life of your own. You're in, you're ennobled in some way, and it, the suffering itself, because it's unrequited, in some way draws you closer to God. And so that love element that you see missing in his relationship with Maddie, I think he finally does come to some sort of knowledge of the love of God. In the story, yeah, and That's it beautiful. has something to do with those relationships in the community. Yeah, fair enough. I Emily, just wonder. Well, I just wonder if it should be moderated with another story, something like the moviegoer, where uh, the main character Binks pursues ideal love or ideal living in a way that someone could misread Jaber to be doing, and finds that what he actually needs is the embodied, real, yeah, real down to earth, messy. Mm-hmm relationship he needs to he needs to actually bind himself to something messy and inexplicable in order to have the rest of his life fall into place but i i love it i love your answer i think it's beautiful totally qualifies as a profound and moving modern meditation on this question for sure well done indeed Who, who has something to respond to that with where did the where did the other two of you or the other three of you go in your ruminations this week okay i looked to movies and I remembered the 1990 cult classic, Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> May you live um, to be a thousand years old, sir. I know. Thanks. So many of Thank our <laughs> so many of our quotes in our family and lots of our family culture comes from this movie. But but it was written by John Patrick Shanley, and it stars Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, for those of you who haven't haven't seen it before. And actually at the box office, it kind of tanked. Because it was billed as a romantic comedy, and it was bewildering as a result. Um, Hanks and Ryan have obviously great on-screen chemistry. That wasn't the problem. But you go to the movies expecting a You've Got Mail take two when it's the two of them. And this movie was more of a like zany philosophical adventure than a meet-cute. Yeah, but I want to totally describe <laughs> to you, with particular emphasis uh, on the beginning scenes of the movie, I want to describe to you 
the the situation of the main character, Joe, because I think this movie is very deep in its assessment of what a good life is. I think that might actually be the main game of that movie is to describe to you the problem of the modern man in a very uh, materialistic world trying to find significance and meaning that's bigger than himself. So let me just, if you don't mind, I'm going to digress and describe to you the plot of this movie a little bit. The story opens on an impossibly bleak gray scene with thousands of beaten down communist worker types who are trudging through the gates of a monolithic factory going to work. And they don't look at one another and they don't look at the sky. They're just staring straight and acting natural. They look sick and unhappy and gray. It's just so gray. And in the background, Merle Travis is singing 16 tons, which if you've never heard this song before, I'm going to, I'm just going to read the lyrics to you. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty powerful. You should totally I'm not going to sing it. I'll sing it with you. Ready? No. You'll no. load 16 tons. Ah, uh, you're interrupting. You oh, my gosh. Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Wow, that, well done. I am so glad that, that we is... have that on camera. That's going out Fantastic. to the whole world, you realize. I love he it. He says, assuming so the good. entire world listens to his podcast. <laughs> No, he well, was there. <laughs> it's a great rendition, but the lyrics of the song, if you if you uh, <laughs> if you imagine this as a serious moment, which I don't think it's supposed to be purely a serious <laughs> moment. It's supposed to be comedic, right? It's it's dark comedy. And his gravelly voice is kind of desperate sounding. And he says, Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones, a mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal and the straw boss said, well, bless my soul, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Okay, so there's this so. bitter hymn in the background, right? It's, yep. it's bitter and heavy and cynical. You're born and immediately a pickaxe is in your hand and you're sent to the coal mines and there's nothing for you. St. Peter in heaven can't call you up there because you've sold your soul to the, this materialistic world, right? You're a slave is what you are when right. you're born. So this hymn is going on in the background and the faceless crowd is trudging. But we follow one character and it's Joe, of course, as he lives a day, and we begin with him stepping out of his car directly into a puddle, and then he Not catches the sole of his shoe. <laughs> no, no, like a deep up to his up to his knee puddle, right? Uh, then he catches the sole of his shoe on a curb and rips it halfway off, so he's walking with a limp, right? It's like dangling off of his foot, and then he steps in an ankle deep hole and like wrenches his ankle around, and he stands there in the hole in the middle of everyone in this sea of people and he turns his face up to the heavens and throws his arms out wide and there's no it's just the him in the background he doesn't say anything but it's pretty obvious right he's looking up to the heavens as if to say why god why it's either a plea or it's a challenge one of the two right <laughs> listen you bastard <laughs> right yeah what the heck man you know he's got his eyes his eyes are wide and his arms are wide and he's like oh my gosh what is this that i'm living you know Well, the camera zooms out then to show the path that these people are walking on. And it it shows you like from an aerial view. And it's a zigzag like a lightning bolt for no reason. It's not a straight shot to anywhere. And where they're going is miserable. But it's also circuitous. And without even asking (laughs) questions, they're they're just following the path, right? You go inside the building and it shows you the elevator light. And the elevator light is also that zigzaggy symbol. As if to say... Inside the inner workings of this world that you're living in, the God in charge of all of it, yeah, it's circuitous for no reason in there too, right? So deep, deep and heavy and kind of hopeless. And Joe gets in the building, he goes to his office, and he says to his coworker, I'm losing my soul. And he means, of course, the soul of my shoe, but the <laughs> implication is obvious, right? I'm losing it's my soul. It's a homonym. So we're, yeah. So- what a setup. I mean, my goodness. Right? That couldn't be any more poignant uh, presentation of the problem. 
how how in a, in a, in just a couple of a couple of sentences how does how does the film address the answer or is there one is it as bleak as that to the end oh man well i think no i don't think it's bleak at all because without telling you the entire story some really intense things happen to joe that change his whole life around <laughs> that make him suddenly quit his job and head out into the high seas right yeah he finds out he's brain cloud he's a hypochondriac anyway it's a long story i knew it i knew it well anyways the (laughs) events of the story make joe throw all of his life away and and see it with new eyes as something that's fleeting he thinks he's gonna die uh at any moment and he begins to live differently as a result and the purpose of his life he thinks is to enjoy what's left of it and then to give it up to throw himself to sacrifice himself for reasons that I won't get into, right? He's going to throw away (laughs) his life. And in throwing it away, he finds it. And he suddenly begins to live like he's never lived before. And there's this beautiful, well, two beautiful scenes that I wanted to touch on today. One, he's having this conversation with a woman and she says, do you believe in God? No, he says, he says to her, do you believe in God? And she says, I believe in myself. And he says, I have no interest in myself. I think about myself, I get bored out of my mind. (laughs) And the woman goes, well, what interests you? And he says, courage. And she starts thinking on it. And she says, you know, my father says the whole world's asleep. Everybody, you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant and total amazement. And with this in the background, further on into the story, there's a scene where Joe is floating on a raft in the middle of the ocean and he thinks he's going to die. And the moon comes up over the ocean and it's huge. And you see Joe silhouetted in the moon. And he throws his arms out wide again in a scene that's reminiscent of him at the beginning of the movie, right? And he whispers, I forgot how big. And his eyes are wide and his arms are wide and he's full of awe and wonder and amazement. And in that moment, I think the director is saying he's living a good life. Here in this moment, this is a good life to have your eyes open and to realize that something transcendent is happening in your mundane. So there's, there's, I think there are two answers in the movie. A good life is one where you're laying down your life for whatever reason. It's one that's fleeting and you're giving it up willingly. And also it's one lived awake, aware of the transcendent coming down into the mundane. Gorgeous. I love that. I just think that's so beautiful. Hey there, friends. I wanted to take a brief minute to tell you about Teaching the Classics, Center for Lit's DVD seminar that equips teachers and homeschooling parents with simple tools for leading great literary discussions. I want you to know that the kind of reading we do here on the show isn't magic. With a few basic principles, you can learn to dive into the treasures of the great books just as well as any literature PhD. To learn more, visit our website at www.centerforlit.com forward slash teaching the classics. Now, back to the show. Also a great movie. So far, we're two for two on recommendations, you guys. Go read Jaber Crow. Definitely go watch Joe vs. the Volcano. Not just for the laughs, apparently, but also for the deep philosophical ruminations. So this is a positive example. Uh, frankly, two of them so far. Now, I'm... I would be lying if I said I didn't think this this among all the questions that we've asked ourselves and each other over the last few weeks wasn't going to get a roundly and soundly negative answer from the modern thinkers and writers. But we're two for two on pretty good answers to the question. Uh, are we going to be three for three? Dad, what did you what did you find? Well, I, maybe so. I, I was thinking of the um, the recent Netflix hit, The Queen's Gambit, about the um, about little Beth Harmon, the uh, the orphan who has a great talent for chess and uh, learns her craft in boarding school, uh, orphanage type boarding school, and then goes on to become an international grandmaster and beat the Russian in um, in a chess saga set in the 1960s. Um, probably everybody's heard of it. Maybe most people have watched it. It says some interesting things about what a good life is that I think are not what I was expecting. It actually says two things maybe that are kind of contradictory or at least not the same. And uh, one of them is that a good life is a life where you 
overcome obstacles to actualize yourself. And it's a story of success. Missy, you mentioned the idea of striving for success being the measure of a good life. And this, this protagonist, this young defenseless woman, uh, in a, in a male world, in a world where she is at risk in a million different ways. Internally, she battles addiction. Externally, she's got no protection. Um, she's, she's at risk. Uh, this is a story where she finds a way to overcome. And we rejoice at the end because she is, she beats the Russian. She's an established grandmaster or whatever. Yeah. She's a winner, right? She's got her feet under her. She's conquered um, her alcoholism. She is, uh, is she's healthy and in control and strong and successful. And uh, if that were the whole story, it would still be fun. There's great chess scenes in it. The acting is excellent. The, you know, some, some of the obstacles that she overcomes are very uh, compellingly depicted. And um, it would be fine. It would say at that point that a good life is a life where you become who you want to be, no matter what the obstacle. You follow your dream and realize it. It reminds me of the uh, Derek Jeter biogra- autobiography that he published for kids uh, many years ago called The Life You Imagine. I'm not even sure I know about this. Mm, yeah. I've never heard of that before. And so, it, you know, it was a it was one of the standard New York Yankee autobiographies. Joe DiMaggio wrote one in the 50s. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, come on, kids. You know, eat your weenies. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But the underlying assumption is you can be whoever you want to be. <laughs> you just have to imagine it articulate your dream and then commit yourself to realizing it. In the case of Derek Jeter, this is an unfortunate thing to tell kids because Derek Jeter is one in a million athlete and the life he imagined is possible for him or it would not have been possible for me. Say, I really, um, (laughs) I have to thank you on the air for not allowing me to run around through my childhood with any sort of foolish notions about being a professional football player. <laughs> we had a conversation just not ever once I said, Hey dad, do you think I could do this? And you said, no son. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but what if I dreamed about it really hard and committed myself? Still no. Yeah. Hard truths, but really important ones. <laughs> well, on the one hand, this is a story like that, right? And she's a fictional character, Beth Harmon. And, but you can imagine her overcoming these obstacles and being successful. And, and we cheer and we, uh, it's the Derek Jeter version, but there's another aspect to it that I think makes it deeper, which is that she is, in, she is incapable of self-actualization without the help of disinterested people who take a, who take an interest in her because of love mm-hmm and help her. And it's, and this is obviously, this is true in any story, right? Uh, um, someone who's successful has depends on help and relationship and, and contribution from a, a world of friends. But the thing, the great thing about it in this, in this movie is that all of those guys are acknowledged by the, by the movie, by the writer director, but also by the character, by Beth Harmon. There's this one great scene where she's it's all in the chess world, right? So she, she needs to know how to handle the latest move by the Russian master. And she spends all night thinking about it. And as she's up a tree, she's against a wall. She can't figure out where to go next. And she gets a call on the phone. She's in Russia, right? Collect. She gets a call from America. Yeah. Collect. Who was it? Collect. I can't remember. <laughs> she gets a call from America and it's one of her old boyfriends or it's one of her friends. And he says in the chess world, right? Yeah. In the chess world, right? He says, you know, pawn to H five or something. And uh, she says, ah, I never thought of that. And he says something to the effect of, well, we've been thinking about it all night. And she says, we, who's we? And then every, uh, from the background on the, on the phone, she hears, hi, Beth, we're rooting for you from literally everyone who has helped her along the way, who, by the way, she has rejected in her self, selfish, self-centered desire for success and actualization. She's broken up with him. She's refused to talk to him anymore. She's you know, said, don't you know, I'm, I break with thee, I break with you or whatever. And that what all of them have done is overlook that offense and say, we love you. And so they get together as a group and help her in this final moment. And she says on the phone, she says, it is really good to hear from you guys. And it's kind of a little, little, um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A little pithy summation of the other side of this question. What's a good life? What's a good life is a, a good life. That is, is one where you receive again, kind of the theme from that last podcast, right? Where you receive, um, unconditional love and acceptance and approval from your people. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, the, the Queen's Gambit said what you would expect a, a rags to riches story, a coming of age story to say in the modern moment. Uh, on the other hand, it says something I think is a lot older and a lot more uh, timeless and a lot more compelling. I, I hear it resonating with the Jaber Crow story in terms of the centrality of the community. I think so too. To the life well lived and not to race on or anything, I, but in conjunction with that, the, the piece that I thought of, the novel that I thought of, that is from yesteryear as opposed to from the modern day, is um, actually it's Middlemarch, George Eliot. Oh, yeah. And she says something really similar. She's contemplating the idea of the ideal life through her main character, Dorothea, who is actually looking for the ideal life, looking for the epic life. A good life, she believes that the outside of the story is a heroic life with beyond the self. And the only question for her is, is that kind of heroic life possible in the humdrum of the everyday? Is it possible in the modern age? Her modern age, of course. And as the story develops, we learn a little bit about Dorothea. But before it gets off the ground, we get a prelude in which Eliot alludes to the historic St. Teresa of Avila, noting that her, quote, passionate ideal nature demanded an epic life beyond the self. Um, the, the quote goes like this. Teresa's passionate ideal nature demanded an epic life. What were many volumed romances of chivalry and the social conquests of a brilliant girl to her? Her flame quickly burned up that light fuel and fed from within, soared after some illimitable satisfaction, some object which would ne'er justify weariness, which would reconcile self-despair with the rapturous consciousness of life beyond self. Mm, beautiful. And yeah, and as the narrator goes on, she suggests that this Teresa was, quote, not the last of her kind. And so in the novel, Eliot considers another Teresa, another such Teresa, and that is Dorothea, mm. who is a woman limited by social restrictions and her own naivete. She longs for this meaningful life, but she feels really restricted by the petty concerns of her society and wonders how this epic life could be possible in her own era. Really, this allusion to the Teresa character suggests um, someone that lives with an idealistic ambition that may or may not ever be actualized. Uh, as a matter of fact, her visions of grandeur may be one of the major problems mm. in the story because she has learned through her education, through her study of, of history and religion and so forth, that the truly great men operate on a large scale, a historic scale even, and that their contributions to the world are, are measurable. She, she, she mentions, for example, um, Milton and Pascal as real contributors to the greater good of society. Interesting pair to choose. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it is this this greater idea that the prelude seeks to illuminate or to study. Um, because by the book's end, this idea of greatness as being tied to new discoveries or to some sort of fame is swept away like so many broken dreams. Eliot replaces them with a possibility for a more common greatness. Mm-hmm. She calls them home epics. And in these home epics, nameless figures living well are heroic for their personal sacrifices and small contributions to some sort of greater lasting social change. You said that they are living well. How? Why? What, what is living well? I guess is to, to, re- to anchor it back to the question again. Yeah, I think that the whole novel is aimed at answering that question. So she surveys a wide swath of characters who are like her looking to make a heroic contribution. There's a doctor, for example, who plans to do some great deed for science and discover the, quote, primitive tissue or to work out the proof of an anatomical conception and make a link in the chain of discovery, right? There's another character, Will, who's drawn to greatness as well. And he starts the story as a kind of a cynic, but grows into a a kind of active political reformer in parliament. 
Then there's another guy who's interested in general work for the community rather than his own financial gain. And then another who wants to make a great academic contribution. So we just get a wide swath, like a cross section of individuals who are all kind of bent on the same thing, that kind of greatness, that great contribution uh, in their own sphere of work and activity. And, and I can see the author wanting us to contemplate um, the idea of greatness mm. as a possible answer to to the question of what is a good life. But then you said already she intends to sweep that away by the end, right? Yes. I, she's, she's trying to consider whether greatness and heroism is possible in mundanity. And um, by the novel's end, heroism looks pretty ordinary mm. in reality. The main character, Dorothy, is willingness to do what she believed in, and grew to know was the right thing rather than bowing to social conventions, that's painted as heroic. Among other things, there's, there's a wife who sticks with her husband when he is exposed as being a really bad guy, a really bad actor. She doesn't leave him, but she stays with him. And there's this beautiful scene um, of grace in the story and um, really healing love, marital love. And, you know, in each of the different lives that I touched on already in these different characters, they each have their critical moment where, the, where they either learn or fail to learn what true greatness really is. But Elliot, through the story, is really suggesting that the greatest contributors to the world are actually anonymous heroes, mm -hmm. um, whose daily mundane yet virtuous lives actually change the landscape of the ordinary lives of their fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. So she speaks of Dorothea this way, quote, the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Mm, beautiful. And so it's ordinary, really that. ordinary people living ordinary lives of people, virtue yes. that qualifies as the good life. Ordinary people doing the right thing instead of the expedient thing has an inestimable and an incalculable effect. And, and I love that word because on the one hand, it, it's not measurable. Well, it's really right? fun to say, mostly. It's really hard to say. Calculable. <laughs> say that five times, eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, on the one hand, it's not something that's measurable. But on the other hand, it's of inestimable effect in the lives of the people that she lives with, right? How many synonyms for inestimable can you come up with? We have that's incalculable. Really we have inestimable. <laughs> I think there was a third one in there, too. Like, your vocabulary is astonishing to me at 8 o'clock in the morning. Shush, Ian. Shush. You were saying something, Missy, about how you find this hopeful personally. I do. Right? I do. I, I find this very – well, first of all, I have to confess that I I really identify with Dorothea. <laughs> this really, is what like, I wanted you to say. Really yeah. identify with I've Dorothea. I've been trying to get I you here for a minute. Totally identify with this desire to – do something heroic to make a contribution that's lasting, whether it's through service or through um, charitable work or through whatever, I don't know, teaching, I don't know. And then I feel constrained by the fact that we don't really live in a world with heroes anymore, you know, that that it, my own life is very mundane. I, 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 I raised six kids. I worked from home. I, I'm a homeschool mom, you know, retired now. And I'm, now I'm a retired homeschool mom who happens to talk with my kids on a podcast every now and then. And, um, yeah, I teach. <laughs> hey, don't be hating. A lot hating. of people teach. Don't but, you know, hating. I mean. It's a great show. Well, you know, I'm not going to be famous. I'm not famous. There's nothing, there's nothing um, uh, lasting that's going on here that's really making a mark on the world, unless it's my children, right? I think probably my children are my greatest contribution to society where that's concerned. But really, I, as I look at this question, I really identify with her and wonder, is a heroic life even possible? What does it look like? And have played out that drama in my own experience, embracing little things and thinking, well, you know, God's eyes are on the laundress. God's eyes are on the diaper changer. God's eyes cook. are on the short order cook. God's eyes are on the teacher. Uh, the little tiny things, God's eyes are on them. And and that in the final analysis, what I hope is that um, that my own experience in being held up by God in those small things and being seen by him is the only heroism I really need, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That he Beautiful. comes in heroically and infuses my ordinariness 
with his extraordinary presence and leaves a mark um, of love. I hope it's love Mm -hmm. in my family and in my community. And um, maybe that's all that, maybe that is greatness. I don't know. Experiencing that love, because it's no small thing to leave a mark of love because we're all such sinners. What we do is we sin against each other all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've gone in to do something that from my own perspective and my own mind and heart is a good deed, a loving act, a a loving comment, and in the end find out that the other has received it as quite the opposite, that in some way I have offended, I have um, uh, trespassed, I have presumed, uh, and all of my good works are, are like ashes. They've amounted to worse than nothing. They've been destructive. And so I see in, in even my attempts to love a, a, a needy vacuum for God to come in and fill and animate so that, so that there's some hope that in the end love comes through. I don't know. I mean, I can't affect that. Nothing that I do can really affect that. I'm so dependent on the love of God first for me to cover me in all of my ineptitude and then um, the love of God in me to somehow communicate in ways that I can't to the people around me that better that better impulse. It this seems like such a cheesy connection in a really deep moment, but it seems to me that you are articulating the problem of Joe versus the volcano. This need for someone with divine love to come down and overwhelm you and to remind you in your struggle to be enough in your own individual situation and to the people that are around you, you're struggling here in the earthly sense. And you're hoping for a moment where the moon is so big that you you can acknowledge, I forgot how big. I forgot how much bigger this divine is than me and how much more his love will fill and spill out of me. It's a given thing that will overflow into people around you rather than something you're constantly trying to hark up and shine up and do right. And, you know, it's the only answer to that regret. I think so too. And that, that it goes back to what I was saying with respect to the Queen's Gambit, that the, the two sides of that idea of the good life are not equally um, compatible with this thing you're talking about the urge to succeed and overcome and self-actualize and triumph and, or even to give, um, the, 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 that idea that begins with the self and, and strives towards some sort of notoriety mm-hmm. that's inimical to this idea of, of the good life that you're talking about. The one that's suggested in Middlemarch and even in Joe versus the volcano, it's anonymity re- uh, receivership mm-hmm. on the other side. Mm-hmm. It seems to be, necessary. I was thinking of, um, for my classic example, I was thinking of a, a section in great expectations by Charles Dickens where Wemmick, uh, lives mm-hmm. at Walworth, his, um, his castle. Do you guys remember this part? Wemmick, the oh, guy with the so post office castle. box for a mouth. Wemmick, the under lower level functionary in the, the lawyer Jaggers's office who has no great position and never will who has no great gifts and skills and never will other than his appetite for portable property. I don't know if you remember. (laughs) (laughs) But Wemmick is the happiest person in the novel by a long shot, partly because he's not striving, partly because he is content to be anonymous and he's anonymous in a very concrete way in a very specific (laughs) place, which is behind a moat at his house which is surrounded by a moat. Now the moat is like an 18 inch wide ditch of water. Um, And Pip says at one point we can easily shake hands across it, but, but it has a drawbridge and everything. And in his house, which he refers to as his castle and and calls it by a, by a name, Walworth, uh, he lives a perfectly anonymous life with his family. And you've got to read the whole, every Walworth section is the best part of great expectations. His aged parent, his father, lives there, who he calls the aged P and he has Pip over one time and he says, deaf he's deaf as a post, <laughs> deaf as a post, just nod and smile at him every once in a while. He'll be happy as a king. And so there's these <laughs> wonderful scenes where they have this, this glorious family atmosphere full of relationship and full of all the the good things that you would hope for in a family. But the key issue of it is that it's anonymous Mm -hmm. 
and unpretentious and no one is striving for anything. Mm-hmm. The, str- the only striving that happens in this entire area of the novel is that Wemmick likes Miss Skiffins, who is a uh, frequent visitor to Walworth. And while they're sitting on the couch of a Sunday afternoon listening to the aged P read the paper, uh, he tries to put his arm around her. <laughs> and um, he strives to to uh, woo Miss Skiffins, and she, uh, in wonderful wonderful ways, puts him off until later. Right, but um, that's it. That's the striving. Doesn't it say something like his hand steals round her waist, and she puts his hand back on the path to virtue? <laughs> um, if we have time, I would like to read it so to you. It is so do great. it, do it, please read. As it, yes. Wemmick and Miss Skiffins sat side by side, and as I sat in a shadowy corner. I observed a slow and gradual elongation of Mr. Wemmick's mouth, powerfully <laughs> suggestive of his slowly and gradually stealing his arm round Miss Skiffin's waist. In course of time, I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Skiffin's. <laughs> but at that moment, Miss Skiffin's neatly stopped him with the green glove, unwound his arm again as if it were an article of dress, and with the greatest deliberation laid it on the table before her. By and by, I noticed Wemmick's arm beginning to disappear again and gradually fading out of view. Shortly afterwards, his mouth began to widen again. After an interval of suspense on my part that was quite enthralling and almost painful, I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Skiffin's. Instantly, Miss Skiffin's stopped it with the neatness of a placid boxer, took off that girdle or cestus as before, and laid it on the table. Taking the table to represent the path of virtue, I am justified in stating that during the whole time of the aged's reading, Wemmick's arm was straying from the path of virtue and being recalled to it by Miss Skiffins. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it great? That's one of the best scenes in But there's no striving, there's no trying to be somebody at all at Walworth other than this. And uh, as a result, you always go away thinking, those guys have something figured out. They are content mm-hmm. to receive the blessing of the world and have that be enough. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, the, it, it brought a, an example from a classic work to mind for me, and it wasn't on me to prepare anything today. Um, so I don't want to cut anybody off. Megan, did you have a classic example you wanted to throw at us as well? I did, but I don't know that it fits with what we're talking about here, and I'm not attached to it. So... How about we just go with your example? That'd be okay. Great. Well, well, then I just want to I want to share with you guys um, a brief paragraph, one of the pivotal moments in my favorite work ever, which is the Lord of the Rings, where Samwise, our sidekick to Mister Frodo, believing his master to be dead, is carrying the ring, and the ring begins to gnaw away at him. He, for the first time, feels acutely the temptation that his master has been undergoing, and it's. It's a temptation exactly like the one that we're describing. The ring says to its to its bearer, with me, you can make something of yourself. Mm-hmm. Together we can be something incredible. And I just I think Tolkien's antidote to it throughout the whole story is articulated really clearly here. And so I want to end with this. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across a darkened land. And armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away and the white sun shone, and at his command the vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees that brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master, that helped most to hold him firm. But also, deep down in him, lived still unconquered, his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Wow. Beautiful. What's a good life? Your own small garden. Small life. Not a garden garden swollen to a realm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, you guys, thank you so much for your thoughts. This has been a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Cannot wait to go around again next time 
with a question that's somewhat darker. What is a good death? <laughs> so do some research and uh, we'll talk to you in a week or so. Thank all you listeners for being with us and we'll see you, see you again next time uh, here on Bibliophiles. Until then, my friends, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. reading. And just like that, we're halfway through our season on The Great Questions. Time flies when you're having fun. We hope you've been enjoying these conversations as much as we have. Join us next week when we take up our next big question, what is a good death? In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Please rate and review the podcast if you get a chance. And feel free to contact me by email at i.andrews at centerforlit.com. I'm curious to know where you see the big questions being asked in our culture today. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.